hello everyone and welcome to a special episode of Policy Wise. It's me, Demi Wack, with my co-host. Hey, it's Ellie. Today we're going to be doing an episode called Policy Wise, like it's normally called, uh, but we're going to be doing something more along the lines of talking about a particular policy and then outlining the history of it a bit, and then Ellie and I are gonna make some judgment calls on whether or not we think the policy was wise or not. But before diving in, we're gonna do a little a little warm up. So Ellie, what is one item of clothing that you most appreciate? <laughs> okay, this is such a targeted question because you already <laughs> know my answer. Demi and I are sitting in our respective rooms wearing our robes as we're recording right now, like our fuzzy bathroom robes. So that might be my favorite piece of clothing right now because it's feeling really good and really right for this moment. How about you, Demi? <laughs> yeah, that is that's a great choice. I so so it's I I don't want to copy you. Uh, <laughs> I think that my other choice would be my slippers. I own dude same. I own at least two pairs of slippers and I could definitely drop a link to my my pair <laughs> <laughs> on our show notes cuz they're really amazing. But currently I'm wearing my running shoes and uh, this is more background than our audience needs, but I recently <laughs> I invested in one of those like treadmills that goes under your desk, you know? Like it's an investment. Oh. I mean, it's a, it was, I made an investment, but I it's been really <laughs> amazing. So I can like walk while I'm working, and yeah, it's just it's changed the whole game. So that wasn't an item of clothing, but that's the reason why I'm not wearing my slippers because I usually am while I'm working from home. That's actually so innovative and awesome, right? I feel like walking while you work, it's like it's like standing desk level up. You know what I mean? Like you. Screw's just standing. Like now we're walking while we walking. Work sometimes, like if I go fast enough, it's like a little bit of a jog too. <laughs> yeah, it's honestly incredible. And I would like. Kind of Are you jogging right now, Demi? <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Okay. So now let's let's get into it before we get too off the rails here. But yeah, before I get started, I wanted to give a little bit of credit for a lot of the content of this episode was inspired by a few articles that are written by a reporter from Education Week, Ariana uh, Prothero, who had just like written two really great articles on charter schools, which is the premise and the topic of today's conversation. And so I just wanted to give a little bit of credit out there. We'll be including the links in the uh, show notes as well. And yeah, they were just like great for providing like a comprehensive understanding and background to a lot of what we'll be talking about today, but there's a lot of different sources that kind of that are going to go into to what we'll be discussing. So now I'll start us off with the policy and just to, to give a little preview of the format again, I'm going to be kind of just like giving you a run through of this policy and then some background around this policy. And by you, I kind of mean the audience, but also sort of Ellie because like we kind of worked <laughs> on this asynchronously. I'll go ahead and get started and Ellie, feel free to chime in whenever and interrupt me. Sure so there we go. <laughs> the policy that I have chosen today was AB 1505 by Assemblymember Patrick O'Donnell, a Democrat from Long Beach, California. Now, in October 2019, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed Assembly Bill 1505 into law, and this rewrote the state's charter school law and included some key provisions. 
So just to go over a little bit of what those provisions were, it included allowing local school boards to consider the potential financial impacts of charter schools when evaluating the proposals for new charter schools. It enabled financially troubled districts to automatically deny new charter schools. And then it also clarified grounds for closing poorly performing charter schools. Now, the new law was the result of weeks of negotiations between the California Teachers Association and the California Charter Schools Association. And this was a significant compromise on both parties, where the CTA, the California Teachers Association, had called for increased transparency and regulation of charter schools, and the CCSA, the California Charter Schools Association, had sought to protect the rights and growth of charter schools in the state. Ultimately, the CCSA adopted a neutral position on the bill after securing some concessions on it, whereas the California Teachers Association strongly supported it. And so now we'll be talking about sort of the catalyst to the bill, some of its impacts, and then at the end, our assessment of whether or not we think this policy was wise. So, okay, I guess before we get started on the bill itself, do you think maybe we could have like a brief explanation of what is a charter school? Because I think it's like a phrase that a lot of people hear semi-often, and I know like I've heard the phrase charter school since I was in like middle school, but I still don't have like the clearest understanding of what it actually is. Yes, you can, Ellie. What a beautiful question. (laughs) Like you lobbed it up to me. So yeah, what are charter schools? Charter schools are publicly funded and privately managed, semi-autonomous schools that don't charge tuition. So just to get a bigger picture of that, again, they're funded publicly, so like funded in the same way that a normal public school would be, but they're privately operated. And they take many different forms, but the majority of funding, like I just mentioned, comes from public funds, although there's some wiggle room there in terms of like also gathering money from like philanthropies or like other private organizations, depending on the format of the school. And although most charter schools are like a single campus, so, you know, just like a single operation in one certain, like in a certain district, there's like an increasing number of these that are managed by larger organizations or like whole networks of charter schools that function more like a school district on its own. And I can talk more about this in a bit as we sort of like dive into the motivation of creating different charter schools. Yeah. What is the motivation behind charter schools? Like, I guess. Yeah. have public schools and you have private schools and then this is kind of an in-between of like public funding sort of but more privately operated what's the point of that like what are the benefits associated with that and why do people feel like starting them I mean there's so many different motivations but I feel like really will let us dive into the different models and like why there's so much variation between the way that the school look works but before diving into that I do want to kind of give a little bit of background of like how they operate just to give like a little bit more of an outline of like how things get approved and like why they all work does that does that sound good yeah that sounds great so a charter school is typically managed by a school leader or principal and governed by an appointed board so this is like similar to like a charity or like a public school system might operate However, unlike traditional public schools, charters are not directly overseen by an elected school board in most cases, although there are some exceptions. And instead, charter schools are overseen by an authorizer, 
which is granted power under the state law to approve new charter schools and close down ones that are failing and not meeting up with regulations. There's different types of authorizers, and this is this varies state to state, including like independent charter boards, which might act in like the same way that like a public school board might operate. Or like a higher higher education institutions are sometimes authorizers for charter schools. And then there's also like state and local agencies. And in California, the model is to have local education agencies. And then this can get escalated to like a state education agency for appeals. So you can think about this in the same way that it might work for like a U.S. court system where, you know, there's a violation that happens at a local level. It might come to like a more local court before it gets escalated and say that there's like an issue with that ruling. Then it can get escalated to higher and higher up until you're reaching to the to the state level. Does that give you sort of like a decent picture about like how these things run? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I think I really like that analogy of, of the court. I feel like that makes it yeah I feel like because I was just thinking when you were talking about these are kind of an in-between between like public and private and so sort of like where is the oversight and I feel like using the court system analogy makes it is really helpful for me in terms of understanding how it actually is run and checked we'll definitely dive I'll dive more into this like after you know and I think we can like sort of loop it back to the motivation here in this next piece but I think a lot of the times that we think about charter schools, I think there's like an inclination to immediately go like, oh, these are like these are just like another version of private schools or oh, like these are, you know, college prep institutions or like what does this really mean? I think also maybe you've known someone who goes to their charter school and there's just like so many different definitions. And I will say like while doing research on this, like I was just like I I just dove so deeply into so many different directions because there's like so many different definitions of what a charter <laughs> school can be and like this broad definition is not always like the most helpful but like hopefully we'll be able to like hone in on some of the the differences here. So to give like a little bit more history on this, the first charter school in the U.S. was created in Minnesota in 1991, and at this time this had like a super super narrow definition. Actually, the article that I mentioned earlier uh, with Ariana did like a really nice job, I think, of like outlining different versions of charter schools. And one that she highlighted in her article was this one called Avalon School. Avalon is located in Minnesota and it was created in 2000. And it's a good example of a charter school who meets like a really narrow approach. And like the approach that sort of, you know, at the time of this being like, a really early phase of of charter schools how you know they were thought about maybe like at this time so like stealing a little like quote from her article not stealing because I'm giving her credit thank you Ariana but I really <laughs> liked it is like <laughs> she's like in one classroom students mingle around a desk strewn in with laptops books earbuds snacks and the remnants of various projects this is not a break between classes it is class Almost every inch of the walls at Avalon School in St. Paul, Minnesota is covered in art. And with several pieces of student-made furniture, the school feels a bit like an antique store. A large wooden armoire is painted with Avalon's teachers reimagined as anime characters riding a dragon. So there's this, this like example of school. Definitely didn't, it doesn't sound like my school growing up, but this is like, you kind of get like this picture of like, really sort of like project based and and you're having a school that's like really like like sort of student centered. I think we can make judgments on these types of schools later, but this gives you like a picture of one and like just some more details on Avalon, which I think, yeah, offers a good representation of of one area of the like one categories of these schools. 
Avalon practices project-based learning where students work individually or in small groups on related or core subjects. And the school is run collectively by teachers with no principal or superintendent, which is really in line with their approach to have teachers create their own personal experimental schools under the district umbrella. I'll mention that the demographics of Avalon include 77% white and 29% of students qualify for free or reduced price lunch. And just to give like a little bit more, I was like looking into the school because I got like, again, I went like way too deep, probably in areas that I didn't need to go, but I was like, okay, what, like, what's going on with this school? I go, how, how is this school doing? So, like, I went to their website, and I was, like, looking at, like, their mission statement and, and all these different things, and I'm, like, paraphrasing a bit, but basically the whole, like, history of it is that Avalon was, like, established by, like, a small group of parents and educators, and they wanted to have, like, a more democratic educational environment for their children and other students in the area, and they wanted to prepare young individuals to become active and fulfilled members of society, I didn't feel like the current school systems were personal enough or like they were way too standardized and they weren't like meeting these needs. So they had gone through and they like looked at a bunch of different teaching methods across schools, looking at like different structures to find like which types of schools and practices and pedagogies aligned with their vision. And they came back and like created this project-based learning model with the teachers like in charge, having some like fusion of like the fundamental basics while also having like innovative ways of student success. So one thing that I will th- say is interesting about this school, which is the involvement of teachers. Um, so we can talk about this more in a bit. And I think this will relate a lot back to the policy that this episode is centering around. But like this school in particular has a really high emphasis of teacher involvement that is typical to Minnesota, but not of many states across the U.S. Here, the teachers have like a lot more sort of say and power. Their locus of control is like way more centralized to the mission of the organization than say a typical charter school. There's like one motivation is to be like, I wanna have like this like new free way of educating children that's not so rigid, yada, yada, yada. Sound good? Yeah. (laughs) Okay, cool. (laughs) I mean, I I have like, I have questions related to that if we want to get into it but I don't know if there's like more background that you want to hmm. I think I think let's, let's keep going but like okay. write down your questions because I feel yes. like there's so I'll much to get notes. through okay <laughs> so there's like that side of the motivation and then we've also seen I think there's like another key core motivation factor are like founders of charter schools who are like seeing the way that like public schools are ran and more motivated to sort of like introduce like this free market competition into public education. So like the idea here is that they want to have charter schools who can bring about innovation and bring about different ways of educating students by allowing for like more school choice and sort of like the normal things that you would associate with like a functioning. If you if you imagine what it was like to have like a really functioning capitalist system with like a really like free market centered approach then this would be like another reason why you'd want to go with charter schools is because it's like sort of moving away from like having a big bureaucratic system running and operating schools but instead you're like how can we innovate how can we make it more competitive what's going to motivate like yeah more innovation and just like better outcomes for students and yeah so I'm not I don't have an example of this one I will, I can find an example if our audience members really like it, but this is like, I think like another sort of side of this is like, we want to have schools that are going to be able to be competitive against one another so that we can like ultimately, like raise the overall quality of education all around. 
Now, there's like this other side of motivation, which includes charter schools as a way to provide options for students who may be like typically in disenfranchised situations. So the main benefit of public schools is that like you're reaching all students in theory. However, there's schools that are are less likely to be able to reach students because of like certain disadvantages. And obviously these students are not able to provide or have access to as high quality education as some other districts and are often lacking the same resources that might be in more higher income settings. So there's like a huge push for charter schools to be built in areas where where that's the case because this is like putting in a whole new school which can like raise money in different ways which can provide like more tailored approaches that really meet the needs of students in the area. So these types of schools have been a big push from a lot of like philanthropists in addition to like federal government money who are interested in like sort of the in like these sorts of outcomes and Several of these are ran by charter management operations, or I'll just like go with CMOs, who are like operate. I, I don't know if you remember me and rendering it earlier, but like I was saying, like there's you know individual charter schools, and then there's like these like networks of charter schools, and like often CMOs have have like sort of like adopted like this network approach where they're they're just like a bigger system being able to like come in and operate in these areas. With this, a lot of these CMOs have like a really strong college prep focus. So the whole sort of like system of it is like we are going to prepare students for college. Now, I'm really happy to get into this later, but if you think about like different uh, goals of education, this can be like a really clear one. I think this one's really clear for like a lot of people, but there's a lot of other reasons why education might be important that I won't get into now, but like kind of keep that in mind as we go through this. Also, these are typically targeting students who are in lower income inner city neighborhoods. So now we're going to move over to California, where this college prep model has been um, really, really impactful. And in this sort of move, I'll just mention that California was actually the second state in the country following Minnesota to implement charter schools. So looking specifically at Los Angeles, this has been sort of targeted as being like a really good example of sort of the rapid evolution of charter schools and specifically this concept of CMOs and the influence of philanthropy. Going back to my girl Ariana and and bringing up her article again because I think she does a really nice job with this. She talks about this one school system in Los Angeles which I'll like get into a bit. So the Alliance Collins Family College Ready High School is one of the CMOs that has received a ton of funding from foundations and philanthropies, which has drawn a lot of different like controversies and thought towards the schools and towards the school districts. And just given the fact that this school district, like the LA school district, is so massive, but Alliance Collins Family College <laughs> College Ready High School that has been around since two thousand four and has like grown rapidly. And at this point is serving around nearly 30 schools. So just like all across LA and like a lot of different regions. And similarly, I did like some like little background research on on this school. Interestingly, they particularly target low income communities with low student performance in LA, specifically looking at the highest like areas with the highest poverty 
and the lowest student outcomes according to like test scores and so on and so forth. And then those are the areas that they decide that they're going to open schools. And the school specifically talked about in Ariana's article, the school, this is just like one of the alliance schools. It is 98% Latina or African-American or uh, 94% qualify for free or reduced school lunch. And the this particular high school was in a renovated sock factory in the industrial part south of downtown Los Angeles. So somewhere near LAX is the explanation I got. And this school is part of the city's alliance network and has an enrollment of around 600 students. And then inside the school, college pennants are decorated, or decorate the front of the office and the cafeteria. And then students typically wear uniforms that are like black slacks and polo shirts with like the Alliance logo, which is kind of interesting. But on Fridays, they're allowed to like deviate slightly from this and wear a t-shirt with a university name on it, which I also think is like really interesting and like definitely part of like that college ready vibe. And interestingly enough, and like this kind of goes back to our policy of this episode, the Alliance Network became a huge target of a unionizing effort for the teacher, United Teachers of Los Angeles in 2015 as it was attempting to like more than double the amount of seats that it had available to students in that area. And sort of the concern here from teachers was that public schools were like being saturated by these charter schools, like taking students and therefore taking funds and so on and so forth. And given like the differences in regulations around the schools. This can impact the teachers that are in the schools, the amount that teachers can get paid outside of these schools, and so on and so forth. There's also been some tension in terms of like how hands-on these philanthropies have been. So this would be like really big donors, like the Walton family or like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, who have put a lot of money into these schools and particularly into CMOs, which interestingly enough, from their perspective, it's it's like a pretty clear reason why they would want to invest in like CMOs who have huge scalability. So like it'd be more likely that you would want to invest in like a system that has a clear demonstration for being able to expand to more and more students than it would be to invest in like a single like a single charter school who doesn't necessarily have the, the same capacity or facilities or at least the proof that they have those things at the time. There's like a lot of criticisms around this, including that like their priorities might push more than other priorities or like what the public wants. And then there's, yeah, there's just also growing concern that there's enough bureaucracy now within these networks that they're becoming equivalent to like a public school system and kind of creating maybe similar issues that might happen in public schools that have like motivated a lot of people to move to creating charter schools in the first place. And so sort of with that, there's also been some like controversies in the U.S. regarding more on like the private side of charter schools and one of the big ones is like the a3 scandal so essentially it was like this huge fraudulent money making scandal where basically they opened up like really fraudulent schools and took like stole a bunch of money and and i won't go into too much detail here but it seems like like this was part of this big motivation to like reignite the conversation around charter schools that eventually had led to the passing of this bill and and some some others that like were not as successful. The, the whole argument around charter schools seems to happen like relatively regularly uh, and like comes up like every couple years. So with that, I will open it up to Ellie now for some questions and then we can kind of like circle back to, to what our opinion is on the, the regulation that came in in 2019.
Yeah, well, Feed, first of all, thank you for the background. That was super comprehensive and definitely helped with <laughs> yeah, my understanding. No, was it was like, good. It was wow, good. It was, was good. <laughs> it was like you're like a little Wikipedia page. You had your <laughs> you had your facts, you had your examples. It was so perfect. I feel like I learned a lot just from listening to you for the past couple minutes. But I also yeah. have a lot of questions. Um okay. So, I mean, just to, like, loop it back to the bill, which is, you know, what we're discussing on if it's wise or not. So two of the things that the bill is, like, really focused on is allowing local school boards to consider the potential financial impact of opening new charter schools and then also giving financially troubled districts, like, the ability to just, like, straight up deny the creation of new charter schools in their area. So I guess I'm just, like, curious about from the financial side, since charter schools are kind of operating in this in-between of they're getting public funds, but they are run from more of less of a public, like standardized, I guess, in terms of curriculum building, like they have more flexibility. So it's sort of in this like in-between state, I guess, what does the financial side of things look like? Because I could obviously see that there would be some concern about if charter schools are taking money away from public schools like if you're trying to increase competition you're kind of just like creating more of a disadvantage just right from the get-go to local public schools so I guess just do you have more background on like how the money is moving when it comes to like public funding that's going to public schools versus to charter schools it's my sense that it really depends on the type of charter school and like sort of like what the goal is of the charter school and like how um, it's operating but in general so like the funding for charter schools in California is based on like a combination of like state aid and, and local funds allowing for like the same funding formula as a traditional public school and then ultimately charter schools are el- eligible for transfer funds from their sponsoring school district so if I'm a local school district I would be able to turn my like I like you could essentially turn like with enough support like a public school like a currently fully public school into a charter school if you go through like the specific processes and you'd be funded under like the same criteria and so yeah it's funded in like a lot of the same way now obviously you're able to get like philanthropic dollars just dependent on what your goals are and so on and so forth but ultimately they'd be like operating under the same funds as other schools within the district. Okay, so I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in California for public schooling, the money like is attached to each student. So each student has a certain amount of money that's like follows them wherever they're enrolled. So that's why you see like a lot of schools like increase enrollment a bunch, try to get more money um, and see so these like super overfilled classrooms. If a student is at a public school and then decides to go to a charter school, is that money following them to that charter school? Like, is that public school then losing money if students are moving over to a charter school? Yeah, essentially. Okay. Um, yeah, essentially. This is, like, operational, like, behind the scenes. Like, I don't think – I don't know if they have me as, like, tacked as a student. <laughs> but, like, in terms of, like, tracking overall enrollment, they would be, like, minus one, plus one. Gotcha. And that would follow. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I could see how that would, like, cause some tension then if you already have, like, a disadvantaged school public school who's then like losing money from the opening of a charter school but I think that's like obviously what AB 1505 is trying to to address in this bill but I think what's interesting about charter schools then you also have in some cases the potential for 
private money to come in or like through philanthropy to like fund some of the school. And I could see there being concerns there too if it's like you have the ability to have a more flexible curriculum and have just like the day-to-day structure of the school is not necessarily overseen by some like big state standard. And then you have money coming in from these like private sources. Is Are there concerns about like the influence of people who are donating money? Like, I guess what is the ability of people or corporations who are donating money to charter schools to actually influence the way these schools are run? Like, is there a separation between where the money's coming from and how the school is actually operated? Or is there some overlap and are there concerns that maybe that could kind of impact the type of education that's given and the quality of education that's given? Yeah, no, I I think it's definitely, it's definitely a concern. And I feel like thinking about sort of my example around Alliance and just like overall like CMO networks, I think that's sort of the big, like one of the big concerns there is that the philanthropies who are contributing to those schools are like, because they're so much more hands-on than in pushing forward their agendas, that there is like likely to be like influence in those areas. I think one really interesting, I think, counter argument to it not necessarily counter argument but like maybe just like another point to consider to this the fact that so when you're looking at like a a school like alliance and you're looking at their attempts to address learning levels and address like student outcomes in an area which is like currently really under resourced but is now bringing in like philanthropic money I think like the initial sort of like reaction that I have to private schools generally, but like importantly charter schools from moving funding from public schools to like, it feels like almost like elitist. It feels like you're brain draining in a lot of ways, taking money out of these areas. And it feels, yeah, it just feels like you're just like looking at improving some at the expense of the masses. And I think that that's in general, not usually the best option. Yeah, it can feel like just like really it can feel really wrong. But I think like the other side of that, and going back to your point of being like, what are the priorities of these schools? How much regulation do we have over them? And like, what happens if these philanthropic goals are like, really out of touch and out of line with what we would want out of like, the public? Like, I think it's such a huge concern. However, I, I think there's like, also the sense of like, if we could get to a place where public schools were able to be fully resourced in the way that like I think that they should be then I don't think that like then like it would be wonderful if charter schools didn't have to exist to be able to like provide education where it's necessary I think when it comes to being able to provide additional education and like additional opportunities where when like you're sort of playing an intermediate phase until we can get to that ultimate goal there's some legitimacy and like charter schools playing sort of like that middleman of let's just like provide additional resources while we can. I also think like if we're providing extra resources to some and not to others, the sort of, even though it might divert away from what the typical curriculum is, sometimes providing, in my own sense of it, it's like if we can give some students additional education who maybe were surpass the level of a typical public school I just feel like that that is like okay in the sense of like if it's going to be like a short-term solution to making sure that these students are getting like some education that they wouldn't be normally like normally getting and kind of like mm-hmm. basically providing extra resources in this area yeah and like when I'm saying that I'm not comparing like 
other students who are in this area, but like in general charter schools across California, the Alliance School versus just like any public school across California. Yeah. Yes, it totally can have an influence on it. Um, and and I do think it's like a it's a big concern. I'm kind of a, a split mind on it because I could see this going really right in a sense where it's like you're opening up the opportunity for like additional funding to come in. I think there could be a lot of pros in having more flexibility in terms of what type of curriculum you're offering, but still making it accessible to students because they don't have to pay tuition. I've been talking with a lot of people about environmental education in California specifically and how we don't have it, which wink nudge like might be another episode that we have coming down the pipe at some point. But I think just like while we've been brainstorming sort of like what are ways to, I guess, bolster the effort to include environmental education in California, charter schools could be like a really easy way to plug in and be like, we don't have all of these roadblocks and like standards that you have to and hoops you have to jump through in order to like mandate a new type of curriculum or like build a new curriculum and implement it. So in that way, you could kind of see here's this opportunity for a school that is accessible for students, but we have the ability to provide an education that maybe isn't being offered in the way that it should be at public schools. But on the flip side, I remember, and who knows how true this is, like obviously there's a lot of hearsay, but I think this is something like a valid concern in some places where like you'll have private schools. And in my city that I grew up in, there was talk that there was a private school, a religious private school who wasn't like teaching evolution in their classrooms because they didn't have to. And there was like this ideological influence that was happening. And I could kind of see that being an issue with charter schools maybe, where it's like if you have this private money that's coming in and the potential for maybe influence in that sense to impact what type of curriculum is offered in a way that's maybe more negative by some people's standards than positive. And then it's like even more complicated by the fact that you're offering one type of curriculum that maybe a lot of people don't disagree with, but it's still being publicly funded to some level. Like that could be an issue. So I feel like it could kind of go either way for me in my head. But I do, I don't know, I feel like it's a complicated thing because, I mean, if we, like, want to go back, like, you're talking about, like, this, like, competition thing where it's, like, maybe opening a charter school and you have this super awesome curriculum that you're implementing and students really want it and parents really want it and it just would maybe drive the inclusion or the updating of curriculum or education practices in the local public schools because there's kind of that competition that's happening. But then there's this thing, it's, like, well, if students all want to go to the charter school, then the public school might start losing funding to even start implementing that type of like curriculum update or whatever. So I don't know. It's like a super complex <laughs> thing. And I feel like I keep going back and forth between like, is this, is this yeah. would this breed innovation? <laughs> is this wise? <laughs> like, would it breed innovation? Or would it just like, kind of exacerbate already existing issues but I mean I guess is it wise it has to do with this specific bill AB 1505 and I shouldn't be giving my whole analysis on charter schools themselves but I do think I think it's more interesting personally for you yeah no keep going (laughs) well no I just think I mean I feel like looking at this bill I agree with the sentiment of charter schools I'm not necessarily anti-charter school based off of what I've heard, but I think there is a need for like wh- like a lot of regulation in places that have charter schools. And I feel like that's kind of just what this bill is doing is like giving local public school boards the ability to kind of consider like would a charter school even be 
a good or a bad thing. If a school isn't doing well, like we have the ability to close it. And just more transparency about the regulation of charter schools. I think that's all like super important and reasonable. So in my mind, I feel like AB 1505 kind of makes sense. And I'm looking here at how the California Teachers Association was like in strong support of it. I guess just like, I'm curious if you have information on like the teacher side of things. Like where do a lot of teachers stand when it comes to charter schools versus public schools? Just to comment really quickly on like the things that you were saying before, I feel like the like on the innovation front and like on the side of like introducing new things and like having the flexibility to try out new education programs and so on and so forth, like totally I feel like it's like a really tempting sort of argument there. And admittedly this is a really like flawed example, but I feel like it just like goes into like the normal sort of thing like the normal considerations that you have to take into account when thinking about like governance in general and like what sorts of like sort of makes sense there. Even even looking at national politics versus state politics you're like oh like it's great like you know all these different states get to try out all these different things and like california is gonna make weed legal and like that's so cool for california because like that works for california or like or like it's gonna work here it's not gonna work there and like obviously i think there's arguments for for that to be also considered like a like a basic need i won't get into that but i think that what the problem hits is like when you're really missing out on people getting their basic human rights and needs met sort of like what you're saying like if there's a school where someone's not learning about evolution that feels just like an obvious flaw in the system and like where the regulation should have be taken care of yeah maybe where like the regulation like makes a lot of sense i think my sort of like really lofty sense i don't know i haven't thought this all the way through so like no one hold me against this hold this against me in the future but i think like in my head the, this sort of like unregulation, innovation sorts of things, I feel like I'm a lot more pro these things happening and maybe like the late teen era. So like maybe like when you're like 16, like maybe like like honestly like college for me, but like if we're going to do it in high schools, okay, like maybe like 14 to 14 onwards. Whereas like I think so much more critical before that phase is like that a lot of just sort of like these basic things that are getting taught and that like people are having equal access to like all the really critical basic information that you must know through a school system. And I feel like if I was in charge, I would be devoting like everything to those, to like those specific like K through nine grades initially. And then, and then maybe like charter schools can start to have like a little bit more flexibility. I think realistically, like if K through 12 could just, if we could just have like amazing public schools in all these areas, that would be like, I think sort of what, what like right now seems like the best option. If that's not the option, then like like charter schools are like a temporary solution until we can get to that point for me for the other grades. So now looking at your teachers, your teachers question, teachers across generally are anti. Obviously that Minnesota example where they're like really involving teachers is like a little bit different and there's like different sorts of regulations that come into play. So like, like in some states, they have to be credentialed in the same way that like a public school teacher yeah. would be credentialed. And California has like moved towards this. And then, like, in other states, that's not the case. And I think that's, like, often sort of the point of friction is that, like, if you don't need to be credentialed, then you don't need to have that, like, and you don't need that, like, mark, then you can often recruit teachers and pay them lower salaries and then, therefore, like, saturate the market. And then if you're paying teachers left, maybe you're using that money more for other things and then that's making the school more attractive and then so they're getting more students, so they're getting more money and so on and so forth what that ultimately means for like the quality of education, like I guess time will tell, or like someone else can tell me since there's probably data on this point. 
And then I think in general, like those sorts of regulations and the fact that they're pulling, like it pulls students from public schools, taking away money that could be going towards like classrooms and teachings and things that are at the public schools, I think is like the main thing. Just to like get back on that point, I think it's just like the lack of unionization at charter schools, which are like usually the main sticking point. So for AB 1505, like I think the main sort of thing here was like, there's like a huge back and forth. Like it was going to be like way harder to create private schools and or charter schools. And then it was going to be like, there was like a push for it to be like a lot easier. And then there's like kind of like the back and forth there. And like the CTA was like a huge proponent of like, let's increase regulations and make sure that that is the case. And like part of that was around like the credentialed nature of of teachers. And so, oh, I don't have the exact policy in front of me, which I totally should. But I think it was something like they needed to be credentialed after like between the time that this was passed and like within two years at charter school. So they weren't gonna like shut down things then, but like teachers needed to like go, oh my God, this might be like a totally wrong fact. But I'm pretty sure that's what it was. <laughs> um, but yeah, essentially like I think that was like why the CTA was in support of it. Was it because it was like implementing that additional regulation? Yeah, okay. That makes sense. I, that's so interesting. <laughs> I mean, just like my last question that I had when we were talking about all of these things, when you got into some of the schools like Avalon versus Alliance, and you got into some of the like, just demographics of those schools, I think part of the conversation around charter schools that is so intense is if they offer opportunities for better education for low-income students and for students of color, or I've heard that people often accuse charter schools of just promoting segregation in some areas. And so I guess I'm just kind of curious, and this is probably super variable across different regions, but I guess what are some of the like current racial equity dynamics that are associated with charter schools as compared to private and public education? Because on the one hand, yes, I think having, I just guess like being able to offer curriculum that's maybe better than what the public schools are offering could be super useful in certain areas. But I could also see it doing the opposite of you're opening up something that's like kind of a magnet program as compared to what public schools can offer. And even some public schools have this structure within them, like the school I went to for high school, it was a public school, but it had this magnet program that attracted a very specific set of students. And there were a lot of conversations about how even within this one school, there were disparities between the types of education that were being offered and the demographics of the students that were in each type of each level of education. So I could see the same thing playing out with charter schools, where even if the point is to offer educational opportunities in low income areas, are there actually any policies in place to make sure that these opportunities are being given to the students that need it versus is this just reinforcing certain, I guess, dynamics that are already at play with what that we see in education. Yeah, no, I think it's a huge point. And yeah, I think you captured it really well in the sense of being like, it does, I think it's really variable across schools. In the same way that we can look at like the policies around like affirmative action and be like, this is going to help like certain groups in certain ways. There's always the thought of like prior to getting to the point where you're able to apply for college and like able to even get to that level there's so many areas in which 
coming from low income setting or coming from a specific background is going to make it so you don't even have the opportunity to get that far. And like, I think charter schools are like a huge example of another thing that's like, yeah, it just kind of like scrapes, scrapes maybe like a couple students who are eligible. And, and like, of course, like they have to have like really high academic standards. And so like they're trying to like cherry pick some students from different schools. And I think it, yeah, it can totally lead to awful outcomes where there becomes like even more gaps and more even more inequality. I definitely think that that's a, a major, major issue. In California, like I, I think it's interesting that enrollment priority in California charter schools is given to students who are currently attending the school and to students who's in attendance area where 50% or more are eligible for free and reduced lunch and students who like reside in the district. But like looking at that as like a specific criteria for a lot like which students are like able to provide access. It also goes back to that case where it's like this is why if there is any positives to charter schools, it's gonna be like they're temporary. Like they're not gonna solve the, the major issues at the end of the day if you also believe that inequality is a major issue, which hopefully our listeners do. Yeah. I would agree. I think too. I mean, I feel like obviously all of the talk around charter schools, and it's more nuanced mm-hmm. than this because their charter schools also offer like different types of curriculum and ways of learning. But I think one thing that I'm seeing shine through is like public schools aren't offering good enough education and education that is increasing equitable educational outcomes for certain students. And so charter schools are like, that's what they're kind of trying to target. But the best thing to happen would be if we just increase like better public education itself and make it make the curriculum better, make our schools better. And so I think it's like, I agree with you that like charter schools aren't necessarily a bad thing, but in my mind, it's more of this is something that we can maybe need need in this like transition period as we better our public school systems. But I don't think that just like opening a bunch of charter schools is really gonna provide the solutions that we want to see when it comes to our educational quality in the state or anywhere in the country really. So yeah, I guess more of like a a stopgap measure, but not really like a final solution in my mind. But I think, I think that's what AB 1505, I just like, I think I, in my mind, I think the policy is wise if I have to give a final, a final, I was like, I'm with it too, I'm with it too. I'm down with this, yeah. No, I, I agree. Um, I, I, yeah, I'm going to submit that I'm not going to. I'm not going to like overly endorse anything, but I think I would like, I'd be like, yes, this, I think of my final answer is yes, the policy is wise. And I think just even the fact that like the CTA is in favor of it and the California Charter Schools Association is not actively anti it is like a good indication that it's yeah. like not, I don't know, as polarizing as a charter school conversation is, I think this policy does a good job of kind of finding a middle ground in terms of like not taking a stance too far either way and just like leaving room for more regulation, which I think is necessary without making it like impossible to open charter schools or like completely getting rid of them in the first place. Well said. Yeah, nice. This was our first episode of Is It Wise, our Is It Wise series. 
Um, so it was so nice to sit down with you, Demi, and discuss charter schools in our bathrobes. Um. <laughs> Thanks for listening to PolicyWise. I'm Ellie Arsbecker, and today's episode was hosted by Demi Wack, produced by Jarrett Ramonis and Cody Stobig, and was edited by Rachel Livenall. PolicyWise podcast is a production of Youth Leadership Institute. If you want to find more great youth content, check out wiley.org and be sure to subscribe to PolicyWise on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And big announcement time, this will be the final season of PolicyWise. It has been such a great ride. Thank you to all of our amazing guests and of course, thank you to all of our amazing listeners. To discuss this episode, engage with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PolicyWisePod and hashtag your discussions with hashtag PolicyWise. See you next time for more youth voice and policy discussion on PolicyWise.